You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Our topic today is, what is Byzantine Christianity and why should we care? And our guest is Dr. Meredith Riedel, and she is a scholar and writer specializing in Byzantine Christianity. Yeah, and I think this is important in a lot of the themes that we talk about at the Bible for Normal People. If you can pull from it beyond the the specificity of Byzantine Christianity, which I think is interesting in its own right, but just the themes as we talk about how it broadens our view of the Christian faith, the Christian faith, Everything. and how there's yeah. many options, people practicing many things. And I loved, you know, one thing is how rooted it is in historic Christian expression. Yeah. Because it hasn't focused on innovation or doing new things, but has really preserved a lot of what probably was a pretty ancient practice of faith. Right, right. And it was, it was a thousand year reign, so to speak, of Byzantine mm-hmm. Christianity, which still has, it, has it's many still resonances today. Ripple effects. So that, yeah. That's even understating. It's not ripple effects, but the orthodoxies, the Greek orthodoxy, Russian orthodoxy, are like direct descendants of direct Byzantine descendants. Christianity. Yeah. And something that many of us, including us, Jared, never learned about and we went to seminary and we never learned about this no. stuff and it's just so fascinating yeah and i think very liberating too absolutely all right let's get into it there is a christian empire that lasted over a thousand years and we don't study it in the west and today in our current milieu we are struggling with issues of christian nationalism the relationship of church and state, which is something that Byzantium wrestled with for a thousand years. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. You need to know about history in order not to not repeat its mistakes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, welcome, Meredith, to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I think we invited you like a year and a half ago. And you said, no. <laughs> That's right, I did. And then we said, so but we please. Said, fine, no, fine, we, Meredith. We didn't. We, we said, don't care. We said, please, please, Pretty please. please. And then eventually please. you said, yes. Finally, she said, okay. Well, so, I was very busy, first of all. And second of all, I'm not nearly at the stature of most of your guests. So I'm I'm kind of flattered to be invited, to be honest. Well, it's, it's surprising because what we're going to talk about today is so universally known. <laughs> in, with, amongst our audience. Um, no, but we're going to talk about Byzantine Christianity. And we want to start with just what's meant by that word. What do we mean when we talk about Byzantine anything? anything? <laughs> That's a good question. And the answer is probably surprising and unsurprisingly also a matter of debate among scholars. So the term Byzantine itself originated in the 16th century in the field of art history as a derogatory term for Eastern Christian icons, which they viewed as flat and uninteresting. European 
viewers of these icons right, viewed them right. as flat and uninteresting. And if you've seen a Byzantine icon, you might agree. I think that anyone who thinks that has not been educated on the exegetical meanings, the theological impact of those icons. Well, because Jared thinks that. Jared looks down on that. So... <laughs> This is good. This is good for me. This is good for Jared. He's always been saying, he just said that the other day. I, I so look down on this flat Byzantine iconography. iconography. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the word Byzantine, even used completely separate from Byzantine history or the empire or any of this, is a term um, that is pejorative, right? Byzantine. Like Philistine. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly like that. Okay, so what what's so interesting about Byzantine Christian? Well, maybe go further into how does this tie into talking about it as a as a way of thinking about Christianity? Well, the Byzantines were um, did never call themselves that. Um, <laughs> they actually called themselves Romans most of the time. Uh, sometimes they called themselves Christians. And they were the citizens of what we in the West call the Christian East, Eastern Christendom. And actually, the broadest time period, and I think the time period is important here. So, the broadest interpretation of the Byzantine era uh, is about from 330, when the city of Constantinople was named Constantinople by Constantine, who obviously did not have an ego problem, <laughs> until the uh, 15th century, 1453, when the city of Constantinople was sacked by the Ottomans. So it's an 1,100-year-long Christian empire that many Christians in the West are completely unaware of and do not study. And this is, of course, an incredible crying shame. <laughs> we didn't opinion. learn this in seminary, did we, Meredith? You know, it was a huge open lacuna, I suppose you might say. Yeah, there, yeah. You know, it, it, given, okay, so politically, given what's happening over in Ukraine, it might be interesting to know that, so the Russian Orthodox Church is the inheritor of the Byzantine Orthodox Church or, or Eastern Orthodox Church. And there's actually this very interesting sermon in the 16th century, it goes, dates back to 1511, where this... Greek monk preached a sermon to the czar where he preached this doctrine called Third Rome. And he said very memorably, two Romes have fallen, be, meaning, of course, Rome that was sacked by the Goths in the ancient period, and then the second Rome or the new Rome, also Constantinople, sacked in the 15th century by the Ottomans. And he says, the third stands, there will not be a fourth according to the mighty word of God. And the idea was that Russian Orthodoxy would be the leader of Christianity of all Christendom on the planet till the end of time. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, exactly. So this should explain, I think, maybe a little bit about Putin's relationship with Kirill, because, you know, Kirill preaches that Putin is God's representative on earth, which is an inheritance from the Byzantine Empire. And I think we have to reckon with it because the Russian Orthodox Church has more believers than all of the other Orthodox churches on the planet combined. It, it may also be interesting to know that in 2004, the ecumenical patriarch, whose seat is in Constantinople still, uh, his name is Bartholomew, he says that the doctrine of Third Rome is, and I quote, foolish, hubristic, and blasphemous because it resounds with the spirit of Cesaro-Papism and Vaticanism and is totally unacceptable to the Orthodox Church. So there's some enmity there, and there's a lot to unpack there, but that's also later. So this is what I'm talking about today. The Byzantine stuff is foundational to stuff that's actually, uh, I think, operative today. Yeah. Well, before we get into what I think is going to be a very interesting discussion about all of this, since this is the Bible for normal people, I think a question that 
people will ask is, you know, what Bible did they use? Because we know mm. today there's different, you know, Catholics have different books in their Bible. There's various Bibles out there. So what was the Byzantine Bible like? Yeah, the Byzantine Bible is very interesting. Uh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, uh, was the canon, uh, the Hebrew Palestinian canon that we use of 39 books. It also includes 10 deuterocanonical books, or we the in Greek is called anaginaskomena, which translates to books that are read. So this is what we call the Septuagint. And then the New Testament are the 27 books of the New Testament that uh, Western churches also agree on. Interestingly, the book of Revelation wasn't really accepted by the Eastern churches until the ninth century, and they still don't include it in any of their lectionary readings. Okay. Can you just, why? (laughs) (laughs) I Um, I can imagine why, but just explain that. So the very, uh, at the risk of oversimplifying, the reason is that the Byzantines didn't call themselves Byzantines. They called themselves Romans. They had the, they inherited the Roman empire after the fall of the Tetrarchy in the third century, it became the East Roman Empire, sometimes people call it, but the bad guys in the book of Revelation are Romans. And so, an empire that calls themselves the Roman Empire do not want to say in church, hey, let's read all about the bad guys who sound like us. So, that I think that makes sense politically, that they weren't interested in identifying themselves as the source of all evil and so on. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, Byzantium is interesting because it, it, it's it been classically defined as a, an empire characterized by Roman law, Greek culture or philosophy, and Christian faith. So it's Roman because it inherited the Roman Empire after the collapse of the Tetrarchy. It's Greek because it was centered in the East with that full Hellenic legacy of Alexander the Great and Greek language. And it was Christian because it was closer to the birthplace of Christianity and everything was done in the Greek language. And also the Bible that was used by the earliest Christians was entirely in Greek. So the Septuagint, as you know, is multiple Greek versions of the Old Testament that is the Bible quoted by the writers of the New Testament. They don't quote the BHS, for example, sorry, the the Hebrew Bible that we use in seminaries in the West. They quote the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. So can I ask a question that, I mean, help us situate what we're talking about, because I think for a lot of our listeners, and, and for me, frankly, I would think of Eastern Orthodoxy in a certain way that that maybe isn't tied to like the Russian Orthodox Church. So can you situate, how does Eastern Orthodoxy in general, and I don't even know what I mean by that, how does that tie into this Byzantine, is that also part of it? Is it a matter of geography as to these different various Orthodox traditions? How do they tie together? That's an excellent question, and it has a very, very long answer, which I will try to be brief about. I think geographically is a good way to think of it, also linguistically. So, because Byzantium did everything in Greek and used the Greek texts of the Bible and has been carried on most, I suppose, forcefully by the Greek Orthodox Church in Greece and its offshoots, I suppose, it's different from the Russian church in that the Russian church is itself an offshoot of the Greek church in its own uh, historical cultural context. So they don't do things in Greek in the Russian Orthodox church, obviously. And they, I mean, anything from the iconography of the icons to to everything is, is actually quite different. The Greek Orthodox church or the Eastern Orthodox church is itself, like many other Christian traditions, subject to different Mm, I don't know if we would call them denominations, 
but different theological commitments, different churches with different names. So it isn't a a, a single church; it's many churches. Yeah, no, that that was helpful. I I think what what you were where you were going. My main question maybe is I can tie it up this way: the way you're explaining it, are all of those different variants all inheritors of this Byzantine tradition in their own way? So the Russian Orthodox would have gone a certain way. Various of these uh, other parts of the Eastern Orthodox or denominations or however we want to talk about that, those are also variations on this same uh, tradition? Yes, they are. I would say that the Russian Orthodox, because no Russian became a Christian until 988. So if we're talking about Byzantine theology and church, most of that is from the 4th century theologically completed by the 10th century, and it's only around then that the Russians kind of become Christians. So, actually, the other Orthodox denominations split off from, uh, what shall we say, Chalcedonian Orthodoxy much earlier. So, for example, if, if you want to sort of hear what I'm talking about a little bit more specifically, the Church of the East— the Assyrian Church of the East, the Chaldean Catholic Church, the Eastern Catholic Church, which, by the way, is in communion with Rome, strangely, since at least since the Crusades. Uh, these churches only accept the first two ecumenical councils because they split over the Antiochian Christology of Nestorius. And then there's a whole other set of churches after that called the Oriental Orthodox Churches, so the Coptic Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, Eritrean Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Malankara, Indian Orthodox, and the Ar- Armenian Apostolic Church which accept the first three councils as ecumenical. And the councils were when? Right. So this is one of the, f- the main features of the Orthodox Church. It is a conciliar church. The authority of the church is in, f- to a large degree, the ecumenical councils. So you start with 325, when Constantine decided what we need to do is figure out what are the doctrines of Christianity? And he was careful about doing this because he's uh, rather famously said that church disputes are more dangerous than war because they bring more grief. And that's probably still true. Amen. <laughs> and he had already outlawed pagan rites in Constantinople in 324, which, by the way, wasn't called Constantinople yet. At that point, it was still called New Rome, and mm. he had actually moved his residence there. So that first council established the doctrine of God, the divinity of Jesus Christ, and also responded to some heretical theologies, like the idea that Jesus is less than God, so the Arian heresy, Mm -hmm. among others. I could go through all of those, but this isn't a church history class. (laughs) And, uh, And then in 381, there was another council to talk about the divinity of the Holy Spirit, and the Nicene Creed was developed, was began to be developed, and then the Third Council in 431 was primarily about the identity of Mary as the Theotokos, as the bearer of God and not merely the mother of Christ. And then the Fourth Ecumenical in 451, the most famous one, it had the most bishops, I think there were 650 bishops there, established the Chalcedonian definition of the two natures of Christ, human and divine, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, in one divine hypostasis. And the important thing here about ecumenical councils is the definition of an ecumenical council is that it has representatives and from the bishops or the bishops themselves from all five of the ancient pentarchy of Christianity, which were Jerusalem as the oldest, and then Alexandria, Constantinople, Antioch, 
And then very last, Rome. And that's just because of Peter. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. I was worried about talking about fast growing trees on here because I'm not a green thumb, but then I realized that probably makes me the perfect candidate to be able to talk about this. I loved the website. It was so easy. It was searchable by region. And then the experts who are there to help you make the decisions lowers the anxiety around something I don't typically know a lot about, but it was a really good experience. This spring, they have the best deals online up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Let's dive into maybe some of, because it sounds like it's very churchy. This is a very churchy episode. Yes, it is. A lot of church stuff going on. So what would be the characteristics of the practices of the Byzantine church? So the the biggest thing about the the Byzantine church is that everything that is established in it and done in in it is done through councils and as a community. So none of this sort of uh, Lone Ranger individual interpretation of scripture or practices. The idea of authority in the Byzantine church it does not reside as, and I think a lot of Western denominations, particularly Reformed denominations, simply in the Word of God, the Bible. So um, scripture is part of the authority of the church. And the reason that they don't put that in the sort of top place is that the church existed before the scripture, right? The scriptures were written later after the death of Jesus and the resurrection and so on. And the establishment of the canon isn't really attested before, is it Athanasius's Easter letter 267? So 
the church existed before the canon was established. So the scripture itself becomes then a part of the tradition. It's written tradition. And it's not the only revealed word of God. So the word of God also comes through the living tradition of the church in the form of the writings of the fathers, the canon law, the commentaries, even the icons, which, by the way, are described as written. So they don't believe in the Bible as word-for-word inspired. It's more of um, a communal revelation whose interpretation is guarded by the church community, but not you're not free as an individual to interpret the Bible. You know, just to interrupt, Meredith, because yeah. this is striking me. Um, maybe this is not accurate. Please correct me. But that sounds very Jewish, like a Talmudic tradition where, yes, Scripture is, the, is an anchor, but it always needs to be engaged by a tradition that's ongoing and living where adjustments are made, changes are made, people have different perspectives. And I'm only saying that to contrast it with what I think the kind of Christianity that many people understand and live in today, especially Protestant Christianity, which is, like you said, very, let's get back to the Bible kind of thing, right? Right. You know, that's an interesting insight, Pete, because, yeah, there's commentaries. I'm full of those, Meredith. I'm full of interesting <laughs> So, the commentaries are the Midrash and the canon law is the Mishnah, right? That that makes sense, actually. The writings of the fathers are, are the, um, what is that called? The halakha. Um, yeah. yeah. There's, um, that, that is, that's actually quite interesting, not only because there, I think there are structural parallels, but also because the Byzantine church was, I'm sorry to say it, fairly anti-Semitic or yeah, anti-Jewish. Yeah. I can't say anti-Semitic because... There's a lot of Syriac tradition, but very there is quite a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment in the Byzantine Church, unfortunately. Well, I just I just think there's I mean why I find this is one of these who cares about the Byzantine period kinds of things. But one reason to care is there's a wisdom there in recognizing the kind of function that Scripture can reasonably have in the community, and it's not without intelligent engagement on the part of people who really dig into this stuff. I think that's true. There's a lot that goes on in the Byzantine church that is completely beside exegetical discussion. In fact, historical critical exegesis, as we know it from the 18th, 19th centuries in the West, just isn't a thing in the East. Never was. And in part, that's because they don't believe in this word-for-word inspiration of the Bible, and the Bible is just one source of authority among others, a very important one, no doubt. But uh, it's not sort of the be-all, end-all. In fact, the other things that go on in the Byzantine church, one of the, I think, most interesting things about them is they never throw anything away. They never overhaul any of their theology. They don't review it. They don't declare anything obsolete. They actually say, because God doesn't change, the theology of the church does not change. So, if something appears new, it is merely following a trajectory that has been set by prior dogma, and that that new, or they wouldn't use the word new, they have this actually complete aversion to something called neoterismos in Greek, which is innovation. <laughs> it's just something coming into the light that has always been there. Okay, yeah, that makes right, sense. Yeah. Right, so it, it's, um, <laughs> I, I find their, their attitudes toward the idea that nothing ever changes. It's, I don't think that as a, an observer from the outside from a long time later, you can identify changes, but they're very, very slow. And so they have the illusion of not changing. Uh, so that, so they'll do, of course, they're going to respond 
completely allergically <laughs> to things like adding the filioque to the creed, because the creed itself is a source of authority for the Eastern Church, for the Byzantines and for the Eastern Orthodox today. So you, you, it's very hard to read theology by Eastern Orthodox theologians that doesn't refer to the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Right. I, I just refer to the filioque, the I explain that just just briefly, just so people aren't like looking it up on Googling and spelling it wrong. So what? <laughs> so yeah. the, the the filioque is the Latin word, and it's appropriately a Latin word, I think, that means and the sun, where the Western Church, specifically at the Council of Toledo in 587, added this phrase to the creed that says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and then they added and the Son. And they did that as a response to the Arianism of the Goths, who were proclaiming Jesus in the heresy of the Arians wasn't quite as important as God the Father, and so seeking to bolster Jesus's um, credibility, I suppose, they said, no, the Spirit comes from Jesus too, because he said, I will also send you the Spirit. And so they added that to the creed, and it, it so upset the Byzantine Church that in 867, the patriarch Photius actually um, declared the Pope, the Patriarch of Rome, a heretic mm. for adding the filioque to the creed. <laughs> and then Rome turned mm. around and predictably excommunicated the Patriarch. Yes, of course, yeah. So, um, yes. <laughs> Good times. Yes, Good times. exactly. Oh, listen, church history is fascinating <laughs> and certainly not boring. Back where we can just uh, excommunicate people. Yeah. Anyway, so, so okay, let's, let's move on then. Um, Talk about how scripture functions. In the Byzantine church, in Eastern Orthodoxy today, even I would say, the liturgy, the way that worship goes in an Orthodox church is constitutive of their theology. So everything that happens in the liturgy reflects a theological commitment. Now, in the Byzantine period, the liturgy was divided into two parts, the liturgy of the catechumens or the liturgy of the word, and the second part the Liturgy of the Faithful, or also known as the Liturgy of the Mystery. And the reason this is interesting, I think, is that it puts the Bible, the Word, the homily, before the Liturgy of the Faithful. So the Liturgy of the Catechumens, anybody can come to, and part of that is to hear a sermon. Then they sort of call intermission, and all the non-communing members in the Byzantine period are asked to leave. And then they recommence with the Liturgy of the Faithful where communion is served, or the mysteries, as they're called in the East. So the, the sermon or the, the Bible in this context is not key, not central to worship. Worship for an Orthodox church, and particularly a Byzantine church, is not worship unless the mysteries are served, unless communion is celebrated. So uh, participating in the mystery within the community is the supreme religious experience for the Eastern Orthodox and also reflects their deeply Trinitarian, deeply Christocentric theology. So the sermon for the catechumens, was this like a 45-minute, hour-long sermon, the way we sort of see them today in certain contexts? Or was this more of a homily? Or, or how did that work? It depends on who's preaching. Okay. And it depends on which liturgy is used. There's three classic liturgies in the Byzantine church. Uh, the standard one is about two hours. 
The other one, which is used on some holy days, is about two or three, two to three hours. And then there's a special one only used on very high holy days, which is a six-hour liturgy. Wow. <laughs> so, oh, and as just as an interesting note, Orthodox churches don't believe you should sit during church. Yeah, I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're standing for two to six hours. But what if Timmy has soccer practice? (laughs) How does that work? So during Orthodox services, even during the Byzantine period, people are not standing silently like, I don't know, like the the soldiers of Xi'an. They're moving around, they're talking, they're kissing the icons, they're keeping the children from running wild. It's a lot more of a communal experience. It's a participation of, of presence more than it is of listening. So the priests are behind the iconostasis. So there's this icon screen that divides the table and the priests who are doing all of their things with the communion from the people. And the icon screen started as a sort of low wall, really just for crowd control. And it developed into this full-blown icon theology with prescribed places for the icons on the screen that have meanings for each individual church, but also for orthodoxy as a whole, while the people in the church are walking around looking at the, at the other icons that are inside. And, and partly this is because when you, when you have a church service in orthodoxy, the entire church is gathered in a moment in time that is collapsed into that particular um, space-time of the worship service. So, and the church consists of everyone who's ever been a Christian in this church, everyone who's ever going to be a Christian, plus the angels. Oh, man. Mm. So that's really sacred space. It it is a sacred space and a sacred time. And the reason that it's all sort of collapsed together, and the reason why Orthodox churches typically are paved with icons on the walls, is that those icons represent people who were in the church previously and have gone to be in heaven. And so the icons function as windows through which those people look into the gathered worship of the believers still on earth today. So they're joining in the worship together. I want to clarify that, at least in my experience, I've, I've visited a few, uh, I think, Antiochian Orthodox churches. And this isn't, what you're saying is actually still how it's practiced. I think for people who haven't maybe been to an Orthodox church, we keep going back and forth between what happened a thousand years ago and what still happens in Eastern Orthodox churches. And what you described is my experience. Um, lots of icons, the the uh, screen, the walking around, they bring around certain, I think I'm sure it's based on that particular congregation, which icons get kissed by the congregation, which stay on the wall. And, and it is a very participatory, a lot of icons, a lot of Kissing is what I remember. And the worship of band. the Yeah. What? And the worship band. And the worship no, there was no worship band. No? Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of got a great chanting though. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah chanting yeah, yeah. and all so anyway, I just wanted to clarify that, at least in my experience, this is still how Eastern Orthodox congregations practice today. Yeah. And this goes actually, I think, to the question of why should anybody care about this right now? Why should any Western Christian care to know about this or hear about it? And partly that's because the Orthodox Orthodox Church claims to be the original Christian church that hasn't ever changed, that is just the way that the original early Christian church worshipped. There's a case to be made either way. But the claim and the attraction of this church for younger people is this is closer to what is original, what is real, the way that the disciples and the early church would have worshipped. 
And so there's this connection to the history and the tradition that bypasses a lot of the modern, whatever the theological version of fast fashion is. <laughs> it trends in church liturgy and decoration and music and different rituals that we would do. This is, it's always the same. It's the same order. They use one of the three liturgies. And this is the attraction for young people now. And the reason we should reckon with this is that the number of former evangelicals who convert to Greek Orthodoxy is quite high in North America. Yeah. Mm. And I actually read, this is interesting to me, I read one study out of an Orthodox seminary that did a survey of their clergy and over 80%, this was maybe 10, 12 years ago, over 80% of their clergy are former evangelicals. Yeah. Interesting. That is amazing. I know, um, I mean, a teaching at Eastern University, and I know we, I've seen that as well with our students. And, you know, for some, they move to Episcopalianism and others, they um, move to Catholicism, but also the orthodoxy, uh, th that dimension is very much represented. And I think, as one person put it to me, um, they don't want church to look like what they've seen all week, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting insight, I think. They, they want sacred space and sacred time, and they don't find that in you know long, drawn-out sermons and music that sounds like what they listen to all week. You know, And I, I think... I, I, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't attractive to me, too. Can we go back and talk a little bit more about the Bible? Because I, I think it's something that is helpful to hear again, that in this tradition, the church came before the Bible. And so it has a place, but is not the place of primacy in a lot of ways. You said in the liturgy, that the sermonette is sort of the preamble. It's it's the thing that everybody can do. But when we get real serious, that's not the central function. And I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, my in my tradition, everything led up to the sermon because the whole point was that the sermon is to get you saved. And that's the point of the Bible. Everything's to get you saved. And that's the climax of every Sunday. And that's the different liturgy than what you're talking about. So what is the relationship of uh, Byzantine and, and maybe even up to, you know, modern Eastern Orthodox conceptions of the Bible and how it how it functions or even how do they read it? Like how do they approach it? What's the hermeneutics? What are the what's the thing they're going to the Bible for? Okay, so let me just preface all of this by telling you something that was said to me by a Greek Orthodox friend after I had presented a paper on Byzantine exegesis of a particular patriarch. He laughed when he introduced me and he said, We all know that in the Orthodox Church we don't read the Bible, we just kiss it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I, I, and I think he was only half joking. <laughs> so there's a couple of things that are characteristic of Byzantine hermeneutics, Byzantine exegesis. There's a tradition in the Byzantine church that um, there's a quote from Evagrius Pontus who died around the f 399, I think, who said, may the sun on rising find you with the Bible in your hand. So reading the Bible is encouraged, but interpreting the Bible is not. So, the Orthodox look at evangelical Bible studies with quite a suspicious eye. It is considered a little bit dangerous, a little bit subjective, a little bit unsafe. It's not something that you're really allowed to do. In terms of their hermeneutic, that's been um, influenced, I, I think, quite heavily by Irenaeus. 
uh, who was the first one to explain recapitulation theory of the atonement. Second century, right? Yes. Explain him just briefly so people are not, again, Googling. Uh, so um, so the, the ultimate goal of Christ's work um, was, is solidarity with humankind. So Christ is the new Adam, and Christ succeeds where the Adam of Genesis failed. And in the way Irenaeus said it, Jesus became what we are, that is human, so that he might bring us to be even what he is himself, that is divine. So recapitulation theory is also known as theosis, becoming divine, becoming deified. So that is the goal. That is the, the lens for everything when you approach theology in the Orthodox Church. There's also, and I think actually you'll probably like this, Pete, a great influence of Origen and his notion of the embodiment of the word in the scriptural text, which parallels the word's accommodation to humanity in the incarnation. So that's, you know, kind of right up your alley, right? I know. That's, I had no idea I was so orthodox. You're um, following the, let me just say, the orthodox versions of Origen's theology. <laughs> um, he, he also, I think Origen also has this really interesting assertion that the Holy Spirit has providentially crafted and problematized the biblical text <laughs> in order to spur readers to greater spiritual maturity. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Yes, you can find that in his On First Principles book four, if you'd like to look it up. And it's, it's actually then later um, worked out through the Cappadocian Fathers, some Eastern monastics, Maximus the Confessor in the 7th century. Uh, he also talked about the inexhaustibility and polyvalence of the word. So, this is something, uh, the things that- He's my homie. He really is. And many of the things that Origen said were just taken for granted by Greek and Byzantine patristic interpreters. So, I, I think that's something that is- interesting for, for people today. It's actually not a million miles away from the way we think of it. Byzantine exegesis, I think I said before, is very heavy on Trinitarianism and on Christocentrism. And the way that Byzantine exegesis works, the way the Bible functions, this is actually a, a massively neglected area of scholarship. Hmm. And I think it's probably because a lot of historians don't feel themselves to be competent in theology. So, when they say they're going to write about Byzantine exegesis, they end up writing about um, the manuscript tra transmission and traditions, um, the location of the books, the use of the lectionary, the composition of the lectionary, um, the stories from the Bible that are in the icons and the things that are from the Apocrypha and the icons. They don't actually talk about the theology very much. Yeah, There needs to be, I think, an article or possibly a book that explains why Western theologians need to know about Byzantine exegesis. That has not yet been written. In part, maybe because the use of the Bible, particularly in Byzantium, is very political, which makes it appear to modernize as polemic and not theology. But those two things sort of go together in Byzantium. It's really the wild, wild east. There's a lot of rough and tumble there in the, <laughs> well, in the church. So, okay, so... Um in the, in the little time we have left here, let's you, you mentioned um, how attracted young people are becoming to this, and that's one reason why we should care about this period. But uh, what else? Why should we care? Who cares, Meredith, about the very <laughs> thing that makes your soul soar and sing? So you're asking historian why history matters. 
Yeah. In a certain sense. Pretty much. But like, <laughs> we don't want the seven volume answer here, right? Yeah. How to say this in a, in a short way. Cause you know, I've got 200 hours on this. Um, I'm sure I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So I think in part, there is a, a Christian empire that lasted over a thousand years and we don't study it in the West or not many of us study it. And today in our current milieu, we are struggling with issues of Christian nationalism and the relationship of church and state, which is something that Byzantium wrestled with for a thousand years. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. You need to know about history in order not to not repeat its mistakes in part, but also because it's actually very important, I think, for understanding our faith and how our faith has been worked out in the past. So, I, I think it was Claire Davis, church history professor at Westminster, who very memorably said, no one lives long enough to learn from experience. <laughs> so, you need to learn from the experience of others. And this yeah. is a reason why we should study history. But our seminaries are moving toward a model of less and less church history because it's a long time ago, it's far away, it doesn't matter. Which doesn't make any sense to me, given that Christianity is a historical faith that arose in a historical context and developed throughout historical context. And we really, I think, ought to know about it. I think it would help our understanding of today. It would help us be, I think, less nervous about things that have developed because they aren't new and unprecedented and never seen before, because of course they've all been seen before. Yeah. I think it makes us less naive. Well, that's the back to the Bible mentality, right? rather than the living tradition mentality. Yeah, I really, I do think church history needs to include traditions and history beyond our own, because the way that it currently stands in many seminaries is it's just a way of justifying or rubber stamping our own denominational flavors. And if we're going to truly be marked by charity or love, as Jesus said, they should know you're Christians by your love, that means you actually have to be open to and kind to people that maybe you don't agree with, who also claim the same faith. So, in the interest of the purity of the church and the unity of believers, how, why would we ignore half or more than half of the people who claim to also be our brothers and sisters? That makes no sense. I think it impoverishes us as Christians. Well, and I'm hearing two different things, which is, one, and I really like this, I, until Pete said this, I hadn't really put two and two together. That maybe there's an argument been made to to lessen the boundary between history and tradition because we we have an inherited Bible, we have an inherited tradition, we have a inherited faith, and so to think that we aren't influenced by that and therefore it's important to understand it, I think is is really naive, and that's that kind of we when we when we get to exclude everything that came before us, we get to make the Bible in our own image. We get to make Christianity in our own image. We get to do away with all of that stuff that actually is built into how we practice our faith. But secondly, I'm also hearing you say, it's important to recognize the diversity of the expression of Christianity over the centuries because we can be so myopic and think. I mean, I grew up in a tradition and I know so many people like close friends and family who would say, I never even knew you could be anything different than X which usually was like Southern Baptist or non-denominational, which is Southern Baptist. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> so basically kind of the same. And, and they felt trapped by that. And if only they could get kind of their older selves could go back and sort of take them around and show them these different expressions and see how many different ways there are and which ones are rooted in what practices and traditions. 
it would have allowed for a faith expression that was more connected to who they were. Yes. I think it also shows you a bigger God. God isn't just fit within the narrow confines of your denominational origins. And studying history, particularly the history of the church, I think ought to lead us to greater humility so that we don't think my way is the best way, the only way, the true way, the only way that's ever been true, it has ever been faithful. And no one, no one likes an arrogant Christian or a proud church, right? There's too much of that going on. Let's study some history and get a little humility in here. I think that would help everybody. So can I ask, as we, as we wrap up our time, if, if there is one thing to point people to, to, to take a next step to better understand this tradition, where would you point people if they wanted to say, yes, I agree, I want to dig further into this, where do I go? Okay, so there's no shallow end. You just have to jump in. Yeah. And I think for most people, the easiest place to jump in is to go study some icons. Okay. And how do you do that? What does that mean? It means to learn what are the theological commitments that are present in the icons. So study some icon theology. Read John of Damascus on the icons. We all like John of Damascus in the West, right? He's not a heretic. We all like him. Let's read him on the icons. That's a good place to start, I think. So icon theology and understanding the theology of the icons that are used in in churches. Learning theology from icons instead of only the Bible and whatever Mm, confession of faith your church holds to. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, and this is the point that John of Damascus makes, icon theology is all about the image of God in Christ. You can't talk about icons without talking about Christology. Can you represent Christ as an icon? And there's a church council in 692 that said, yeah, in fact, you ought to represent Christ as a human being in an icon, and not just as a lamb or some other metaphorical creature before that, because he was really incarnated. So it's incarnational theology that is represented in icon theology. It's really important. It's really fascinating. And I don't think that it's a violation of the second commandment. In the West, we are way too simplistic about that. There's a wealth of biblical theology in the theology of icons that's worth studying. I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. Mm. Sounds good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Meredith, for bringing the heat on something that I didn't know much about at all. Gently bringing the heat, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Slow burn. Slow burn. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you for letting me talk about it. You bet. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Thanks to our listeners who support us each week by rating the podcast, leaving a review, and telling others about our show. We couldn't have made this amazing episode without the help of our producers group. Melanie Wright, Jordan, Vicki Hansen, Ryan Campbell, Jeff Gwynn, Willard Vaughn, Karen Clausen, Chris Skiera Vaughn, Julie Frazier, and Anna Bateman. As always, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team, Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Tessa Stoltz, Nick Striegel, Stephen Henning, Haley Warren, Jessica Shaw, and Natalie Wyand. Thank you.